Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. You've seen Charlie Baker's poll numbers, right? He's the most popular governor in America. Seems poised to steamroll over whichever Democrat emerges as his opponent. This doesn't even look like a fair fight. Baker is absolutely unbeatable, right? Well, our guest has one thing to say about all that conventional wisdom. Forget about it. John Walsh says Charlie Baker is absolutely beatable. He unspooled his argument in a piece now on the Commonwealth website. It went out on Sunday as the weekly upload feature to those who get Commonwealth emails. If you don't, you should rush to the Commonwealth Magazine website to sign up right now for those. So, John Walsh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I want to reinforce people should sign up. What the heck are they thinking about if they're not getting these emails? Well, thanks. They're uninformed. I mean, you know, you can't be depending on... What are those other places? I don't know. This is the only place to get the news that matters. We are the place. Well, thank you for that plug. And so for those who don't uh, don't know you, John knows a thing or two, I'd say, about winning big statewide races in Massachusetts. He was the campaign manager in 2006 for Deval Patrick, who went from political unknown and outsider to governor, a two-term governor at that. Uh, John went on to chair the Massachusetts Democratic Party. Uh, so, John, you're known as a really smart political strategist and thinker. Uh, um, when you say jo- Charlie Baker looks vulnerable, I'm guessing some people who are listening are wondering, what is that guy smoking? Exactly right. That's a, with that introduction, I should probably just leave because it's only going to go downhill from there. But, you know, I, uh, listen, competition is good in politics. And uh, the worst strategy I've ever heard in my life is inevitable. And that's... I sense what Charlie Baker's thinking about, what people are writing this election off because Charlie is a guy that can't be beaten. They're just ignoring what elections are about. I mean, but, elections matter. But your, but your argument, uh, as you write for us in Commonwealth, is not just that you know competition is good, but you really say that the idea that this, this isn't going to be a competitive race and that the Democrat doesn't really have a shot is, in your view, just... Uh, it's the conventional thinking, but you, you think it's it's off or missing some important things. Give yeah. us a little sense for the argument. Why why is Charlie Baker beatable? So, by the way, I think this is so – I believe this so much. I've got a couple bets out, and the good news for me is that people are willing to give me some odds. So I, I think I'm going to be cashing in on election night. Um, listen, it starts with this. I'm not even going to talk about the lousy job Charlie's doing as governor. The fact that our bond rating is down for the first time in 30 years. You're not going to mention that, right? I'm not going to mention. I'm not going to. This, the whole case about him being beatable is in addition to being doing a poor job. The, 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 we have the worst commuter rail system in America, the worst commutes in America. We have, we have, uh, we're underfunding our K-12 through system. And Charlie Baker has no interest in fixing those things. He's got a 20, if you're, if you're waiting for your bus, don't worry. Charlie Baker has a 20-year plan to fix it. I don't even make the case on that. I'm gonna, we'll let Jay Gonzalez, or if Bob Massey takes this, let them make that case. My point is, structurally, the race is. And part of it's, at, uh, so as I point out in the piece, I think there's three things that uh, provide a foundation for uh, uh, a winning campaign. The first one, and the most important, is values, or policy, or issues, or however you want to talk about that. And on that case, I think Charlie Baker is extremely vulnerable in a, first, in a for a couple of ways. The other part is just the structure of the numbers. So I get that the poll numbers are great, and uh, 
you know, if you believe in the predictive value of early poll numbers, I hope you enjoyed Jeb Bush's inauguration, right? <laughs> early polls don't matter. Every pollster, Steve will tell you, snapshot in time, they move. In 2010, right after Scott Brown won re-election, I've still got a copy of the poll that had Deval Patrick at 29, right? Deval Patrick's move in 10 is the biggest shift from unfavorable to favorable in some, I don't know, we'll have to get a historian, but, but it, it is, it, you campaigns matter and the structure. But the structure of this one, in addition to the values Charlie's got some problems with, the structure of the numbers suggests it's there. And, and then the last piece is the ground game. And uh, I know Charlie Baker has millions and millions, and he's willing to break and bend every rule in the book. He's threatening $30 million under control. Um, but that ground game matters, and there's some real factors in this election that, uh, that, that bring those three things together so that anybody I, – I, I'm, I'm a man of limited means, so I don't have many more uh, $20 bets to accept, but uh, you know, I, I'd still do a beer or two if somebody wants. All right. So, so uh, you mentioned Steve, and that is a reference to Steve Cazella, the president of the Mass Inc. polling group, who's, who's here with us as well. And Steve, uh, so John doesn't have more money, but he's willing to uh, wager some beers. Will you? Uh, would you take that bet uh, with him? Or I mean, you, you know, and you've read his piece as well. What's your sort of first reaction to his, uh, you know, provocative? Uh, but you know, again, some people would say, you know, maybe off, off, uh, uh, off the track uh, take that Baker is, is beatable. Well, I guess I, w I never really say, or if I have, it was unintentional that, that something's a foregone conclusion. I mean, it certainly is the case that, or I would suggest that it's the case that looking at the poll numbers, Charlie Baker is by a wide margin the favorite, which is probably why people are willing to give such big, such big odds. You know, I don't know what the going rate is these days, but I would imagine it's probably pretty steep. And the things that, uh, that at least that I'm looking at that I think people are probably considering there are a couple, you know, one is, um, it, one is just the lack of knowledge of the, of the democratic candidates. You know, it's not just that Charlie Baker has, has a big lead. It's that the, that people really haven't taken the time to learn who the Democrats are. Now, the reason that I, that, that I, or, uh, one reason that I, hesitate to make predictions or that I don't make predictions is that, you know, that's unique, meaning that things could happen that no one's seen before, like, you know, the Democrat gains late attention and no one really has time to learn anything bad about them. You saw that with Scott Brown and Martha Coakley, for example, you know, no one really had time to learn who Scott Brown was because he surged so quickly. So, you know, you can see these kinds of things happen, but there just hasn't been any, any of the signs you would look for. No big fundraising surges, no huge crowd, huge adoring crowds, you know, no sort of real energy around it, no democratic leaders really hopping into the race. Um, and to add sort of on top of all that, the snapshot in time, which absolutely that's what it is. It's not meant to predict what the, the margin is going to be in November is still very significantly in Charlie Baker's favor at this moment. Mm -hmm. And let's go through a little bit of some of John's argument. So sort of on this values idea, which is, you know, one of one of the sort of three big elements that John lays out in talking about uh, why he thinks Charlie Baker's beatable. And, and I guess to sum it up, your argument is 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 that he's kind of betwixt in between, right? That he's in some ways tried to distance himself from Republican orthodoxy, and that creates some problems with the sort of conservative base of the Republican Party. And at the same time, he's not really, you would argue, uh, quite the sort of moderate 
guy who who should be as appealing to folks in the center as he as he makes himself out to be either. And you write about a few different uh, uh, moves he's made that seem like clear kind of appeals or sort of, you know, you might say throwing a little red meat to the base uh, that could alienate, uh, you know, people more sort of that lean more progressive. So, uh, you know, you're kind of arguing he's neither betwixt or between. It seems like I think Charlie Baker feels like that's the sweet spot. And that's sort of how he's that, you know, that's what he wrote into office. And I think that's what they think will will carry them to reelection. It feels pretty safe. Stay in the middle of the road. You know, the old thing, what's in the middle of the road, yellow lines and dead armadillos or right. something Right, but like that's that. from Texas. Now, here in Massachusetts, oh, people would say that voters are, Snapper frankly, turtles, a little maybe. bit more moderate than we might yeah. think. We always say we're a super blue state, but, yeah. but you know. Not we, if you live here. You know, right, you know that's right. a lot different than that. So here's the thing. Maybe the way to ask people to think about it. What's the issue that Charlie Baker is going to stand for, even if it costs him re-election? What does he believe so much that he, it's a value to him? I'd suggest I can't name one. And I, don't, I mean, I'm open to think about it. But so what does it mean that Charlie Baker, not only he didn't support Donald Trump and he wants to make it, a, and the most recent polls show people think he's against Trump. Right. But we got some things about his policy. But he didn't vote for president. He didn't make a decision. I am supporting Donald Trump like Scott Lively did. He didn't say I'm opposing Donald Trump. I'm voting for somebody else. He didn't even take the thing that some people do is, I voted for my wife, I voted for Ronald Reagan, I voted for whomever, right? I think Mitt Romney said he voted for his wife. He I did, believe, right? which is, if, if, you have a, if you don't have as strong a backbone as Mitt Romney on politics, Uh-oh. you are in the wrong space, baby. And Charlie Baker thinks that by standing for nothing, by deciding nothing, by postponing everything, this he is he's in a sweet spot, and just please God Almighty, one more day off the calendar, and you know the basic point is I'm inevitable, so let's just survive this, and that is not a good strategy. What is it that Charlie Baker stands for? What's his position on the millionaires tax? We don't know. What's his position on fifteen dollar minimum wage? What's his position on you name the issue? What is his position? Anybody in the world knows Charlie Baker is against taxes. He won't even stay that he's opposed to the millionaire's tax. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Like, who's who cares about that? Who cares about someone who won't stand up for what they believe in? That's a very bad values proposition. People are looking for an authentic politician, right? They're looking for someone who's going to stand up for what they believe in and fight for it, even if they don't agree with it. People voted for George W. Bush who didn't agree with them on everything. And God Almighty, can you imagine? George W. Bush seems like a good a good deal. We'd take him right now. People voted for Deval Patrick even though they didn't agree with him on everything because they believed he was fighting for what he was what he stood for. Charlie Baker, he won't do that. And that space is very dangerous for a guy who's trying to run. I got a bunch of money in the bank. Everybody at Beacon Hill likes me. I'm standing for nothing. I'm saying nothing. That's a bad place to be because here's the deal. Charlie's team, as I point out in the piece, which people should look on the website for, is saying, hey, he's not really a Republican. And that's sort of the deal in Massachusetts. He, he's not for crap. He's not against anything, but he's not really a Republican. He's not as nuts as the president of the United States or the governor of Maine. So please, God Almighty, thank God the Republicans aren't all like that. But if he, So the fact that you got the deal, I'm not really a Republican, seems to be fueling some of these good poll numbers. Except there's a group of people in Massachusetts who believe him. 
They're called Republicans. And not all of them are very happy about it. That's the first structural problem for Charlie's inevitable campaign. A third of the voters in the Democratic, the Republican convention in Worcester voted for someone who's frightening. Right. Lively. Right. It just, I mean, I'm not going to talk about the guy. People should Google him. What he stands for. And one third of the leaders of Charlie Baker's party are so sick of him not standing for what they believe. They voted for this nasty person. That's a bad place to start. And it, why is that important? Because Charlie Baker got less votes in Massachusetts than Donald Trump did. The, you, you can, and, and you can say whatever you want. Charlie Baker's got all these poll numbers. But the problem for him, right, is while, okay, we talk a little bit in the piece, like what, what, how many right-wing Republicans are there in Massachusetts? This is a guy who won by 18 votes a precinct in 2014. So you could say the, the right-wing's not his base, but it absolutely is his margin of victory. Yeah. So, Steve, I mean, how about this idea that, that Baker's, you know, by being occupying this middle ground, uh, John would say sort of a ground that's kind of untethered to any real strong positions on, on many issues, that that's a dangerous spot to be. And you've, I mean, you know, you've done a lot of polling on Baker, sort of both his popularity or favorability, but you've also broken down and tried to look at uh, at how people view a set of issues. And, uh, you know, on some of those, uh, some of the performance issues and other things he's attached to, he, he sort of seems to perform less well on, yet, 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 yet people don't seem to be really uh, sort of holding that against him. They still have a very positive view toward him. Yeah, I think there's a couple things there. I mean, one is that it's not necessarily the case that people wish that he was taking stronger positions on things or wish that he would tether himself more strongly to a particular ideological point on the ideological spectrum. You know, and I think you can see that in the numbers when you look at his numbers between parties. You see in the most recent WBUR poll, his his favorable unfavorable ratio is actually slightly better among Democrats, which I think actually does in some way speak to what John was saying in the sense that there are and there have been since he took office a number of Republicans, registered Republicans, self-identified Republicans that really haven't been all that thrilled with the way Charlie Baker's governed, you know. But the flip side of that is that he's moved sort of, I guess, somewhat to the left or at least occupied more places in the ideological spectrum closer to the middle, um, even if he hasn't chosen one particularly. And that's endeared him to some Democrats, you know. So throughout his term in office, his, his numbers among Democrats Democrats have been really strong, um, really, really strong. And I think that's the, that's the real the real um, the real challenge that a Democratic that a Democratic opponent's going to face is how do you convince Democrats that there's something better that that they can have, you know, something some reason that they should vote against Charlie Baker um, and, and go with the Democrats. Uh, Michael, you mentioned it mentioned the numbers from another recent WBUR poll where we asked people to rate Charlie Baker's performance on a whole bunch of different issues from Things related to transportation, like the T and traffic and so forth, opioid crisis, uh, cost of healthcare, and so forth. And we found what was interesting there is we found a bunch of sort of middling ratings. Nothing great. People don't love mm -hmm. Charlie Baker. They never really have loved Charlie Baker, but they like Charlie Baker. They think he's doing well enough. Um, we found a lot of good ratings, a lot of fair ratings, very few excellent ratings. You also saw that show up in the Suffolk poll that recently came out where there wasn't really a, a, a strong sort of powerful image that people have of Baker when you ask people that like what that say that they had a 
positive view of him, they say things like doing a good job, getting a lot accomplished, bipartisan, fiscally responsible. There's not really some particular uh, thing, getting back to what John was saying, there's not really some particular thing where people are sort of lit on fire by a particular idea or ideology or thing that Charlie Baker is willing to you know, fight to the political death for. Um, that's just not how he's ever been. You've seen a lot of sort of middle of the road uh, activities, a lot of middle of the road positions and um, just just a, a sort of tepid to good ratings, but never really bad ratings. Yeah. One thing if I could add in, by the way, Steve, not just because you're here, but Steve's polling is really attempting to answer these questions about where the where the field, where the race is. And no offense, but other polls don't. They tend to do, you know, like uh, a favorability and, you know, the, the basic stuff. But the most interesting one that you tested, Steve, for me was the place where Charlie Baker had his best rating was management of the state police. So let's just understand when people think about Charlie, that's the thing he's doing best. Does anybody think that's going all right? And does anybody? I mean, it's it's just like you got to be kidding me. One of the ways that a, as a as a person who's not a professional in the polling business, I would describe Charlie's Baker Charlie Baker's support as a mile wide and an inch deep, and that is not where you want to be. And I think that's better to be a mile wide than a half a mile wide. But okay, you know that is a, that's actually a very interesting point. And, and if we were to sort of game out ways that so that what it would look like were this to happen, you know, were a Democrat to win, that'd be the thing that, in retrospect, a lot of people I think would look at is when you look at these high favorable numbers, when you look at these high job approval numbers, they tend to be in the somewhat category. In other words, if you say, "Are you very favorable? Somewhat favorable? Somewhat unfavorable? Very unfavorable?" Most people will pick one of the top two, but most people will pick the second of the top two. You know, there's not a lot of people that give him a really strong stamp of approval. And we saw that again in these areas of, of management. You know, people give good or fair. They don't give excellent. Um, so, you know, th- th- there is something to that. You know, there is something to uh, how his ratings have been. And they've always been that way. You know, you contrast that with Elizabeth Warren, where people are either all the way on the top or all the way on the bottom. They either really like her, really don't like her. Baker's always been sort of in the middle. Um, whether or not that's of a vulnerability, I think we'll have to see. But again, sort of if you're drawing like what would this look like were it to happen, that's one of the numbers that I think people will look at. You had an interesting situation in the last week. I don't think it was your post, but other people have asked this question a different way. Name something that you think Charlie Baker's doing really well at. And by the way, I don't think people poll Charlie Baker, but he had the same reaction to that question last week. More than half the people can't name anything. Amongst the three or four, in the poll I've seen them, three or four top things, he didn't mess with the marijuana law. Like I guess there's five or six people, five or six percent of people who are very focused on that, but there's no place that's getting into the 10%. Like this is something he's really good at. And last week, Charlie Baker was asked, I think it might have been on Browdy's show, um, by, uh, by a caller or a Facebook person, what is the biggest thing that you've done that wouldn't have been done if you weren't there? I'm trying to replicate the crickets. Took Baker like 12 seconds. And he goes, oh, do I have to pick one? It's like, no, babe, name one. What's that thing on the top of your lips that you know what you need me for? This, because there's nothing. There's nothing. You know, at the end, he's going to make the case. Uh, I, I kept us safe from invasion from Rhode Island. Like, okay, Charlie, but what else have you done that's really mattered to people? And not only is there nothing factually, but 
Voters, if you give them an open-ended question, they can't name something. If you ask them specific questions, they give him middling ratings. And if you ask him, he can't name it. That's not a good place on the value side of this conversation. So that makes him vulnerable, is my case. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, getting into the area of numbers, which is sort of your other one of your other big big buckets that you talk about. And there are a couple of numbers that you talk about. Uh, the first has to do with fundraising, and then most of what you write about has to do with turnout and, and, and those kind of things. But on fundraising, I, I mean, you make – Again, an interesting, you know, I guess somewhat maybe counterintuitive point, which is that Baker has been on this fundraising tear. I mean, he's got millions uh, of dollars in the bank already and is still raising money like crazy. That often is sort of taken to be a sign of a really strong candidate. Obviously, you need a lot of folks in your corner to, to be giving you money. You argue that, 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 that they're on this ferocious fundraising tear because they're so frightened and they figure they need – they need to spend like crazy to keep him above water from uh, the, what what they what you you argue they know is the vulnerability that Charlie Baker has. Now, even if I take your point that there may be some truth to that, I guess what uh, my feeling was that it, it's possible that tons of money doesn't indicate strength. But I've never seen anybody argue that 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 an, that an empty campaign account is 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 the sign of uh, of a of a campaign on the move, which would be the kind of inverse of that. And right. frankly, that's the picture for the Democratic candidates now. So I I, I, I just think that's that's a sort of square one question people have of Jay Gonzalez or Bob Massey is that, I mean, they are sucking wind when right. it comes to raising money and uh, 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 not to sort of bring up the sore yeah, but subject, but John was working for the, the guy who was the third candidate in this race, Seti Warren, the former Newton mayor, who who bailed out in April, basically saying, "I I didn't see a path uh, ahead in which we could we could raise the money to to run this campaign." That's right. And by the way, even though people would look at my history of working on campaigns and think that I specialize in campaigns that don't raise a lot of money, that's not. I'm not saying that that is a, an ad, an ad advantage. I'm not saying the way to do this is not raise any money. Right. What I'm saying about the fact that Baker. He's got everybody on Beacon Hill likes him, apparently. He's got poll numbers from heaven. And, the, you know, according to this theory, the Democratic candidates are a joke. And he's still breaking every rule and standard in Massachusetts fundraising. He has got these fake committees. He's funneling millions of dollars into Donald Trump's National Republican Party, leaving a chunk of it behind, and they funnel most, most of it back to him. And what they're leaving behind, Trump is using to pay his legal bills, Michael Cohen's legal bills, supporting racist candidates in, in, in uh, states across America. That, so Charlie is funneling money into Trump's national committee as a way to, to skim some of it back for him. So he's breaking and bending every rule like, listen, if he was just going around and collecting money from people in Massachusetts doing a great job, he'd still have a huge fundraising lead. Right. But he'd have plenty of money to do it, but he thinks he needs $30 million. And my point about this is not that money's bad. I'm just saying this tells you that Team Baker is smart. They have good people there. They get this. They're not going to say what I'm saying, but I'm telling you I can read their minds. They know this race can be close, and that's why they're breaking all the rules because they know they're going to need $30 million before it's over. But in, in some ways, I mean, it's kind of a circular argument here or, or a catch-22. I mean, don't more Democratic-leaning voters or donors need to buy your argument, Absolutely. which at this point we're saying is, uh, you know, 
we've we've questioned what you might have been smoking before you came in here. It's not yet kind of the the received wisdom out on the streets that and and, and so your argument has to sort of break through if. You know, we always say that Massachusetts is a big ATM for both Democratic and Republican candidates nationally, but that de- Democratic side of the ATM has been like, uh, you know, yeah. it's not been coughing up anything. And so there has to be some sense that you're right for somebody like Jay Gonzalez to start to raise money well, and money, have more absolutely. than like $100,000 in the bank, right? Uh, yeah, he's got almost 200 actually. Just, I mean, not that that's compared to $30 million. Right. But listen, I agree. Democratic donors better step up. And as soon as this thing posts yeah. online, I'm going to cut and paste the clip and mail it to all of them. Right. So they start thinking about this yeah. Yeah. because this is a winnable race. Right. And yes, they're funding Elizabeth Warren. They're funding 12 candidates up in Nikki Songa's whole seat. They're funding Democratic donors did not run out of money and they did not decide they don't care about winning elections. But what they do have to understand, and if I could talk to each one of them through this microphone, this is a winnable race. If you want Massachusetts to deal with traffic and our transportation interests this year, you want to fix Charlie Baker's traffic jams, elect Jay Gonzalez is my guy. If you, want to, if you want to fund public higher education, vote Charlie Baker out. If you want to deal with underfunding of K-12, through there's an alternative. And my case to those donors and to those voters, it's a, we're, we're getting into the voters' time, is if, if you just think Charlie Baker is like, yeah, whatever, he seems like a nice guy, he's not as crazy as Donald Trump, there actually is an alternative for Massachusetts. We could stand up for what we believe in. We, it's, it's possible that we could have a governor that won't send Mass National Guard resources to be part of Trump's border solution. We don't have to do that. And, it, and this is a winnable race. And, and, and we're talking about some of it, but there's more. The numbers are real. Right. Now, one of the big things you, you argue in terms of the numbers, and I'd love to hear Steve's take on this, is that, you know, turnout is, uh, I mean, it's the old cliche that it all, all rides on turnout. But, but more specifically, you lay out the fact that in gubernatorial races, unlike presidential years, you know, we almost always see, you know, between two and 2.2 million uh, votes cast in Massachusetts. And you also make the point that in races, both both the uh, presidential and in state governor's races, the Republicans can scrounge up about a million or 1.1 million. And that sort of explains why they're competitive in these gubernatorial races. Uh, and yet you argue that, uh, so, you know, you say if we can, if the turnout can be bumped to 2.3 or 2.4 million that that that's really what would uh, put fear into into Team Baker's uh, 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 hearts. Uh, I mean, uh, Steve, what do you think about both that that uh, idea that if turnout were to go up by a couple hundred thousand from what we've normally seen, that that would be a very good sign for a Democrat and 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 threatening to Baker? And and is there any reason to think that this particular race, when we've got at least at this point? Uh, Whoever the Democratic nominee will be, we've got two candidates, neither of whom are are well known or are who are kind of lighting lighting the state on fire. I know there's been a lot of talk that that it's an interesting race because you could have some ballot questions driving turnout. You could have Elizabeth Warren driving turnout. So it, there's a lot of things about it, and you've got the sort of Trump factor, which is a little bit of a unknown how much people are are motivated by Trump, who's you know again obviously not even himself on the ballot. Uh, but are there some sort of some wild cards here that that sort of 
turn upside down our usual thinking, which is that the governor's race is at the top of the ticket, and that's what would drive turnout. Yeah, I mean, I think that if turnout does spike, that the odds that the odds are pretty good that the people that the marginal people that would turn out, in other words, that we wouldn't normally think would turn out, would lean Democrat. I think that that is is very likely, and we've seen that show up in other states, both in the off cycle elections in 2017 and in the states that hold them then, and also in various special elections that have happened around the country where you've seen these just huge spikes in Democratic turnout in certain places. The thing, though, that I think the, the cautionary note is a couple. One is that I don't really think that the it's necessarily true that this, a statewide Republican is limited to just that number. I think that in many elections that's true. But, you know, you think back, for for example, to Bill Weld's reelection, which if things stay the way they are is sort of what we're looking at here in terms of the margin. And there he pulled many more than just the usual sort of Republican total of maybe 1.1 million or so. Um, the other thing is that even though those marginal voters may be uh, Democrat on most most lines in the ballot, you know, and may actually help Democrats get elected to more legislative seats and, you know, win their congressional elections by even more comfortable margins than they're already almost certain to, um, you know, Charlie Baker does well among Democrats. He does well even among pretty solid Democrats. You know, you think about the poll that UMass Lowell did up in the third congressional district where um, Charlie Baker had something like an 80 percent approval rating among Democratic primary voters. The same thing in the seventh. He had also 70 plus percent favorability among, you know, the Democratic primaries, the most liberal voters already in the most liberal district in the state, and he's still looking at 70 percent. So uh, unless one of the Democrats can catch fire, I think there's not much in turnout alone that will necessarily save the Democrat. I think something else has to shift and, you know, to, to give one of these Democratic challengers some life before turnout will do them much good. Mm-hmm. And I and uh, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the, the race back in 94. I was going to sort of uh, bring that up and sort of poke a little, John, at some of the numbers sure. that in your piece, because you run through a huge number of races in which the Republican uh, in the state, either for governor or the presidential ticket, was very close to 1.1 million, which seems to be the magic number, or in, again, almost all cases has looked like kind of a ceiling on, on their vote. But in fact, as Steve said, 94 was really an exception. And I think a lot of people are people who are not maybe as long in the tooth as we are, uh, won't even know that Charlie Baker was the boy wonder of the Weld administration. He was the whiz kid uh, protege of Bill Weld. And there's a lot of parallels where now, you know, Weld won a relatively close race, but then went into his reelection and just ran away with it. And I think, again, Baker won a very close race four years ago. And, And as Steve said, a lot of people sort of see a parallel where he may he may, in fact, sort of repeat the the, the pattern of, of of his mentor. And and I looked at the numbers. I mean, Bill Weld actually broke that 1.1 million ceiling by a good amount, and 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 yeah, actually got one and a half votes. million votes. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that that's that's also, I guess, a, a, an outlier. But but this this could be one I of the races the numbers, where that outlier I, result is repeated. Yeah, I want to hit those numbers, but I hope people will take your. Uh, your advice and and really understand that Charlie Baker really is a protege of Bill Weld and Paul Salucci. Like he was the guy when he was human health and human service secretary that privatized a lot of this stuff, right? And, and that had not really been working out well. And by the way, Charlie Baker did write the big dig financing plan that has crippled the T and we're, put we're, the turnpike out of business. These are like Google. We're getting, we're the, getting the Weld machine. administration greatest hits here. Look, huh? these, oh yeah, well, no, but these are people <laughs> if they were trying to figure out like I don't really know much about Charlie Baker, but it seems okay. Hit the Google machine. 
Just mm -hmm. go big dig Baker. There's plenty of information that Charlie Baker is, not only is he responsible for not fixing the T, he personally wrote the finance plan that has bankrupted the T for 30 years. So it is some justification that comes home. But listen, I get it. I think there are a lot of differences in the, and one of the other things we talk about in the piece about, the, I think of usually there are streams running in elections that don't really have anything to do with the candidates or the campaigns, and they impact the election. I mean, I get that, even though I'm a big advocate of taking control of the things you can with a good grassroots ground game, there are things that run in those elections. And in 1994, uh, there were things that ran, uh, you know, against, 1990, I mean, there were things that ran against, you know, a Democrat winning that election, and, and honestly, we didn't run a, 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 an effective campaign. But here's the deal with that, okay, that's the one issue. I lay out in the piece, Mitt Romney 1.1, comes back with his buddy Paul Ryan. He still gets 1.1. And I'm not going to go through them all, but we can go all the way back to the Gipper, Ronald Reagan 1.1. There have been an occasion where somebody on the Republican side gets more. But the point for us is what's going to drive that turnout up? And I, you know, I, I have great respect for, for Steve's look at these numbers and, and, and what they mean. But I want to tell you, it's not just, he's right, all over the country, turnout surges are delivering Democrats to office. But it's not just all over the country. There's not been much going on here. But we recently had a special state reps race in Attleboro and turnout surged and delivered a retired school teacher to the state house. That's the kind of energy that's on the ground. And and we're going to, so what's what else do, so Let's just go back to some numbers. Trump got 50,000 more votes than Baker. And while Baker eked out four, an 18-vote-per-precinct win, Charlie Baker, um, and he barely made it through in one of the lowest turn elections, Trump got 50,000 votes more. Hillary beat him by a million. So let's look at that. A million people in Massachusetts who voted for Hillary Clinton are unlikely to vote in this election. We're good. They have stuff to come to vote for. They are going to come to vote for Elizabeth Warren and keep her loud and proud and beat Jeff Deal, Trump's boy in Massachusetts. They're going to come out to protect her. They're, we have a ticket that's strong, including Mara Healy and others that are going to drive that turnout. we got ballot questions. By the way, and then we're going to run a ground game starting this weekend, or I guess by the time we're out last weekend. Mara Healy and Elizabeth Warren and the Democratic ticket are out on the doors talking to these million voters who have traditionally not voted in Democratic primaries. And a whole interesting story is after Scott Brown got his 1.1 and won, Elizabeth Warren, and, and I agree with Steve, people didn't realize what they were buying when they, when they got Scott Brown. But once they figured it out, they came back. Scott Brown, favorability ratings closing on 60%. The day before, Elizabeth Warren beat him by a quarter of a million votes. They like Scott Brown, but they voted against him based on policies and a ground game that really impacted. That's the place that Democrats need to get to. I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but anyone who thinks it's not possible has not been paying attention. All right. Well, we have been paying a lot of attention to your argument, John, and I would encourage folks listening to read John Walsh's piece on the Commonwealth Magazine website. And uh, we will we will be following. And uh, in November, John may may be uh, uh, coming into a little bit of uh, cash or maybe some some beers for 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 folks who've, who've placed that wager. 
Uh, but but I want to thank you for coming in, and thanks for the piece that I I, I think will uh, will will generate some interesting conversation and debate around the state. Thank you, John Walsh. Thank you for inviting me. And Steve Cazella from the Massing Polling Group. Thanks for uh, joining us. Glad to do it. So this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Listen to us every week here. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.